is our custom today, let's begin um, by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So today, it's just the two of us. Josh is at the beach. So, um, we hid his suntan lotion, just to get him back. But today we're going to be talking about two terms, one of which you're, you're probably familiar with if you're still sitting in this class. That is Gnosticism, just ignore the G, Gnosticism. And a particular heresy called Docetism. Now, these can be really confusing, even though you've heard about them. Um, by way of a setup for Laura, who's the expert in class today, Gnosticism is a term that you'll hear frequently used when people are having theological discussions. It's a term that scholars themselves define differently, so depending on who's using it, it may mean slightly different things, or, or rather different things. For some, Gnosticism refers very specifically to a very specific, uh, historically defined movement in the very early church. For others, it's a much broader umbrella term for a, sort of a generalized, for, for any alternative version of Christianity that shares some, some ethical and theological distinctives. Perhaps the one constant with Gnosticism is the notion that real Christians have special knowledge that normal Christians don't have. And the second thing it shares is a kind of a spiritualized Christianity. I know that sounds weird because it's a spiritual religion. But spiritualized in this sense. That Christianity is really all about liberating the soul from the body. The body is the problem. It's fundamentally evil. And true liberation of that spark of God inside all of us happens through that special knowledge. So that's kind of a, a generalized definition of Docetism. Docetism, is it Docetism or Docetism? Docetism. Docetism denies the humanity of Christ. He looked human, but he really wasn't. He was God. That's a really simplistic way of sort of categorizing that particular. You're the English guy. Why are you asking her how to pronounce it? Well, as you know with English, you can't always tell by the way the word looks. Um, by the way, we have one older member who has requested that you meet on time because he's trying to make the tip off of the Oh, okay. <laughs> then I'll shut up now and turn it over to Lauren. I did get a, a text from Josh, uh, Matt and I did, that says, praying for you all this morning, pray for me that I don't get a sunburn. <laughs> we don't feel sorry for you, Josh. Uh, and pr we'll be praying for, yeah, we'll be praying for your in-laws, Josh. So we're at the uh, part of the creed where we're looking at the affirmation that Jesus Christ was uh, born of the Virgin Mary. He had a human birth, 
And then he, we kind of skip to the part where he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So now all of this is affirming something really important because uh, there were Christians who, as Matt uh, was just describing, who were getting, who were being kind of allured into thinking about Christ in Gnostic or Docetic terms. So we'll talk about that this morning. First, to kind of set this up a bit, I think um, what we know about Gnosticism, yeah, it is an umbrella term, and it was a movement that began, there are these early kind of inklings of, of Gnosticism that we see in Scripture itself. So 1 John 4, 1 through 3, is clearly speaking against something like this, this kind of heresy. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is already in the world at this time. So the key idea here is that this is a real incarnation of God, God in the flesh, not an appearance or an illusion. And there is good news in this for us. There's a reason why that is so important, which we see in Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. I've written these on the board in case you're interested. It reads, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. So that's good news. This is someone who has been through every single struggle that we have been through, and was obedient. We are also told that he uh, felt pain and hunger. Um, he felt pain to the, to the point of undergoing great torture and death. Uh, he knows what it's like to uh, be exhausted. He knows what it's like to be uh, need to get away from people. We're also told uh, there are some interesting passages that tell us that he grew in wisdom in favor with God. That, those are kind of tricky for us. We'll return to those at the end of our discussion if we have time. But we're told that he was human in every way, that he learned obedience. So uh, this passage in Hebrews that we have this high priest who is tempted in every way can clash, it seems, with certain verses in Scripture, such as James 1.13, which tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil. So what does this mean? He was tempted in every way. God cannot be tempted by evil. Was the temptation real? Or uh, was he uh, like, you know, Clark Kent, Superman in disguise, where the temptations were just bouncing off of him like, like bullets would bounce off of Superman? If that's the case, it doesn't seem like good news that he went through this temptation because it wasn't real for him. So this is what early Christian theologians are wrestling with, is these kinds of tensions. And if you're living in the 2nd or 3rd century, 
and uh, you have adopted the kind of standard Hellenistic ideas of who God is, you might tend to think Gnosticism is on to something. So let's, let's review what this is. We've heard about this term in this class, but let's review it. First of all, Gnostics generally believed, this is, again, this umbrella term, generally believed in a, a dualistic view of the world that all matter is evil or, at best, unreal. That material reality um, was not really the intention of divinity, that it was a mistake. So there's this kind of platonic worldview that's assumed here where there is uh, the highest spiritual reality, the source of being, and then there's something like a layer of, of spiritual realities underneath it. Um, and so this is how they saw the world, and with each layer of spiritual reality, there's a kind of being that presides over it. And one of those uh, fell into what we call sin, and because of that, the material world was a result. That's the basic idea. That sounds wacky to us, but it made sense in that kind of philosophical uh, context. Would it be, is it almost like saying that the world was created not by God to, as a perfect place, but the, the creation we know it is a result of sin, almost as if a satanic kind of a creature had built it and it was wrong from the get-go? I think that would be fair. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't know enough about it to say, to speak to the satanic creature part. I know that it was, it was thought to be a mistake. So the world is imperfect, not because God made it to, to move towards perfection, which is what you know, we've, we've affirmed in this class, but rather the world is imperfect, according to Gnosticism, because um, it was never meant to be. It's, it's wrong. It's all, it was not meant to be this way. So, um, even though God said it was good, well, and we'll th that's the thing, they're having to play a lot of games with scripture to have this view, right? Um, they're essentially rejecting Gnosticism, essentially rejects the Jewish teaching of the goodness of creation, right? So, uh, humans are really, according to Gnosticism, something like the sparks of a spirit that is exiled or stuck in material bodies. And our bodies trap us in the confusion of our passions and impulses. And what we really need is to be liberated from our bodies. That's our salvation. To achieve our true nature through uh, something like a mystical, spiritual, um, out-of-body experience that you can have now. And then after you die, you'll merge with this great spirit reality that you're supposed to join. Now, what we need um, while we're stuck in our bodies is a spiritual messenger to come and to wake us up from our stupor, to kind of lift the veil. And according to Christian Gnosticism, that spiritual messenger was Christ. He reminds us of our heavenly origin, gives us the secret knowledge to return to the spiritual realm. Now, uh, how did Christ do this? Well, that's where they came up with this view, Docetism. So, uh, because divinity and materiality don't go together, because the material world is a mistake, it's uh, materiality itself is kind of beneath the dignity of divinity, 
Christ, if he was really God, couldn't have had a real body. That's the thinking. Uh, It'd be like two magnets that, that kind of reject one another. So the best thing that could happen is that Christ could appear to be real, like a hologram or something. So somehow Christ's body appeared to be human but was not. It was an illusion, a phantasm, something made of spiritual matter. And docetism is also one of these kind of umbrella terms that you hear if, you're, if you do uh, read enough theology. You hear it kind of, sometimes people will accuse each other of docetism. Well, that view tends towards being docetic. And what they're generally kind of accusing someone of is um, emphasizing the spiritual over the material or at the expense of the material. That's usually what's going on. We've talked about Marcion in here. Marcionism had a kind of docetic view of Christ. Um, Because he was divine, he could not have suffered. That's the idea that Marcion held. And um, a lot of early Christian theologians, clearly they're reading scripture and see that scripture is not allowing us to go there. But they also see that there's a danger, another sort of danger, in presenting the material as being beneath the divine or the suffering that Christ went through as being not actually real. And it's because uh, many of them were giving up their lives for their faith. So Ignatius of Antioch is one of the earliest Christian theologians who writes extended sort of refutations of docetism. And he, he himself was facing his own martyrdom. So you have to think he's uh, part of what strengthened him in facing his martyrdom was his belief that Christ's suffering was real and Christ joins those who suffer at the moment of their torture. So you have, this, this is a life or death kind of issue for people. This isn't just something they like to sit around and kind of theorize about. Okay, so we can pause here for questions or comments. Now, one thing that might be worth thinking about is, is um, why would somebody believe that and use that term hologram, which is really modern, but we, we kind of get it. Why would, where would that come from? If, if you remember back to when you may have studied classical Greek literature or the, or the ancient Greek and Roman gods and goddesses, one of the things that always happens in the Greek myths when it comes to the gods and how they behave is that they often will appear in human form to make humans do certain things. Right? They look human, but the secret is they're not really human. For example, um, of the... the the Greek gods, male gods in particular, had a thing for human women. But if they showed up in their in their godness, human women typically incinerate. They just can't because they're human and not immortal. So the, the gods will take different shapes. They'll look like something else or somebody else. That's the way they send humans messages. They'll they'll take on the form of your grandmother and come and tell you to stop misbehaving, and you tend to listen to your grandmother. Number one. So this. This notion of having creatures that look human but they're actually divine is what the Greek world already believed about the universe. They also believed in that fundamental distinction between the human, uh, the mortal world that we live in, and the immortal world of the gods. As Virgil says, old age in the gods is green. They just keep growing up. They don't get old. They don't decay. They live in a world beyond time. Humans are defined as being stuck in time by being mortal, 
by being imperfect, by having bodies that, that are corruptible, whereas the gods have incorruptible bodies. They don't even eat human food. They drink nectar and eat ambrosia, and that's why they don't even have blood in their veins. They have this thing called kicker, right? Which is, and that's a way of explaining the dualistic notion of the universe. That's the way they've always thought about the universe. There's gods in the world of it's beyond time and corruption, and then there's us, and we're doomed to corruption and mortality. So in, in the first century, in the second century, it's really easy to see how people might walk into Christianity bringing that baggage with them and to make sense of this gospel, which really is hard to understand because it is truly unique to make the claim that Christ was fully human like us and corruptible, and yet also God, fully divine and incorruptible. That's a mystery that's just difficult to get human brains around. And like most of us, the way they used to think about things is really comfortable. And plugging it in is what leads us to Gnosticism. Yeah. Other questions or comments? Did they say his suffering was sort of spiritual suffering and he didn't actually feel it bothered? Or are they saying he didn't suffer at all? They, you know, again, it's a, it's a really broad movement, so I'm not familiar with every expression of it. Um, I know, generally speaking, from what I've read, uh, they want to say he couldn't have really suffered because divinity can't actually feel things. And, it, you know, to suffer, you have to be able to um, be hurt. Divinity can't be hurt. You know, you can't act, someone can't actually throw a rock at God, right? So there's this, uh, there are ways of, different ways of kind of getting around that. There, some thought that maybe there was this divine spirit that sort of inhabited this human person, Christ, that abandoned him at the cross, which that's one theory. Um, some say that his suffering itself was an illusion, that it was just something he appeared to have done. He had to act like he was human. He had to act like it hurt, but it didn't really. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I remember hearing um, a person at church tell me one time, we were talking about the crucifixion, that we were, we were talking about the crucifixion, Christ on the cross, and, and he said, well, you know, the great thing about Christ was he was never afraid. He said, not even on the cross? He said, no. Because he knew, he had complete faith that his Father in Heaven was going to take care of him raise him from the dead. So I don't, so this person said, so he didn't really have, he didn't real faith. He didn't really have to feel pain because he knew what was going to happen from the get-go. He was never afraid. That's what makes him a hero. I would argue, though, to follow up with what she said, the ancient Greeks knew this really well also. The gods are never heroes because they never have to face the ultimate problem, which is death. Um, only people who can lose everything, only characters who can, who can lose it all, are venerated as heroes because they're the ones who risk everything to do what they think is important. Gods never have to do that. So that, that fundamentally changes the notion of who Christ is if you buy into the, that notion of heresy. But, it's, but like my example showed you, it's not really dead today. There, there are versions of thinking about Jesus in ways that are very, that are very docetic. Yeah, which, which kind of leads into the next segment of material I have. So 
The question is, how does this get tricky for us? Wait, do we have another comment? No, Bob, do you have a question? Okay. Um, so, what, where I think this sometimes can feel kind of clunky for us is when we're not sure what to do with the affirmation in Scripture that Jesus grew in wisdom, he grew in favor with God, um, that he learned obedience, that he was tempted. Um, the fact that he grew in favor with wisdom, wisdom, grew in wisdom and favor with God and man implies that he learned obedience, that he in some sense grew morally, which, you know, for us, we think, well, isn't God omniscient? Isn't God morally perfect already? So, can Christ be truly God and truly human? So this is a question about salvation because, and I, I really like this quote by Gregory of Nyssa, the fourth century theologian, and this kind of, I think this kind of sums up the reason why this, this really matters and they wrestle with all of these questions for so long. The idea is that what Christ, what God has not assumed, he has not healed. So they, they were very much in, a, most early theologians uh, were very much in agreement with the fact that uh, in order to save us, God had to take up the full human experience into the life of God. So as they're trying to sort all of this out, they had all these different proposals where how it might have been. Um, a guy named Apollinaris suggested that perhaps um, Jesus, the person, had um, an animal kind of nature and then a human sort of... Uh, uh, expressive apparatus, and then he had the divine mind kind of imputed into him. Uh, but then he got pushed back on that point because of this idea that if God hasn't redeemed the human mind, hasn't assumed the human mind, then it hasn't been redeemed. So they're wrestling with all this. What does it mean? How could he be fully human in every way, fully God in every way, when it seems like humans have to do things like suffer and grow into moral perfection and learn obedience and feel temptation. So the Christian fathers agree that the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, um, they come up with this idea that he did not simply turn himself into a human being and cease to be divine. That's really important. He didn't stop being divine to become human. I mean, they're reading scripture to, to make sense of this. Um, so, in other words, there wasn't a subtraction of divinity to make room for humanity. Rather, what the Logos did was take on the nature of humanity as an addition. So, the divine nature and human nature were somehow miraculously joined together. And then what the Chalcedonian uh, statement says is that they were joined together without admixture or confusion. In other words, they weren't amalgamated to make some new thing. Um, somehow, Christ is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and that's about all we can say. It's a mystery otherwise. We just know there has to be both. In the, you know, the picture of him growing and living, he was 12 years old when that was said. And you know, a typical Jewish boy, that'd be about the time that he'd be brought into the right? So to see him in the temple, in effect, arguing and explaining scripture with the scribes and the priests had to be something that God was proud of. That he had paid attention in all this, the 
synagogues and when the oral traditions were explained and rehearsed. And right. So, Which in itself implies that he didn't already speak that way when he was a three-year-old, right? That's the thing is we tend to... Um, we, te- we, we like these stories and we may kind of see, oh, there's a kind of growth here. But what that means is he was maturing. He moved from one point of knowledge to another. Um, and so that can make some people uncomfortable. You know, we, we thought about showing the clip from, uh, what, is it, what was the, I can't, I'm blanking on the movie right now, Talladega Nights, where he talks about how his favorite. Josh's idea, we're going to blame it on Josh. Yes, Josh's idea. Ricky Bobby says, my favorite is the little baby Jesus who's so, Omnipotent and omniscient. So unfortunately, that is sort of. Sometimes people sort of assume that that little baby Jesus knew everything and just pretended to be growing. So, um, what I think we can take away from this in terms of how do we maintain the understanding? What does this mean for us in practice? Uh, holding together the fact that Jesus was fully divine, fully human. What it meant at the time for people who were confessing the creed is that um, Christians are saying that the human and divine natures were so united in Christ that one could say that the divinity suffered or that the humanity worked miracles. So you can say that God suffers. You can say that humans, a human can uh, work a miracle that only can save, can save us. You could even say that Mary was the mother of God, in case you're wondering where that controversy came from. That's where that all came from. There's all this contention around that claim. But they said, technically, it's true. If we really say that Jesus is divine, then technically Mary gave birth to God. The thing we have to be careful of is that we don't wind up thinking of Christ's two natures in such a way that we separate them and lose the unity of the, the oneness of the person that Jesus is. The fact that he has these two natures means that he lacks nothing that makes him fully God and fully human, fully one of the Trinity and fully one of us. So does this mean that God felt temptation? Does this mean that God suffered and died on the cross? Not if by God we mean a divine essence, a first cause, something like what the Gnostics were talking about. That kind of God can't do that. But a Trinitarian God can. That's the key. The doctrine of the Trinity becomes really important to this whole discussion. So this is a quote from Robert Jensen, who's a theologian who's at Princeton right now. He expl- I, I like the way he explains this. He, sa- he says, Indeed, God the Father does not die, since he is the source of all reality. Nor does the Spirit, who is life. But the one who is the Son does die. And this death belongs to his relations to the Father and the Spirit. That is, to some of the very relations in which the three are mutually God. Thus, this one death indeed belongs to the life that is God. I know that's a little bit complicated, but the idea there is that 
it took a Trinitarian understanding of who God is to see that somehow God can remain transcendent, the source of all being, and God can remain the force of life that moves within us and that sustains us, and that God can become human, can experience temptation, can hurt, can grow in moral understanding and obedience, and can even die. Yes? So it's, I thought about this one. It's, was the resurrected Jesus who walked on the earth fully divine? The resurrected Jesus. Yeah, like after the, after yes. So but he was fully divine before as well. But was, was, was the human, since he, was he, at a, was he still human then? Yes. Yes. No. The human, that's, when, that's the good news here. Going back to uh, the idea of Jesus being our high priest is that humanity itself has been taken up into the life of God. So there is, a, there is, you know, right now in the life of God, there is a human being, which is a pretty amazing thought, right? That when we pray, we are praying in the name of a human, Jesus. That's one of the little anecdotes post-resurrection and gospels are, are so important, I think. Every, there, there's one... Um, the story of Thomas, right? Who's who's struggling? You know, people die. When people die, they don't come back. So I don't know what you saw, but unless I can stick my hands in those wounds, I'm not going to believe it's the same Jesus. So we know how that story. My favorite one is when the apostles are trying to figure out what just happened. They've gone back to Galilee and they're fishing. And they see this guy with a campfire on the shore, roasting fish for breakfast. Nothing to a Greek mind. Nothing is more human. And eating human food. And he, and he offers them breakfast to, to eat with them. I think those two stories, for example, are, are, are in the Gospels to say, you know, we don't, we, it's a mystery, but we know even after his resurrection, it was him. And it was, it was really him. It wasn't like in Star Wars where the, the, the Jedi Knight kind of shows up as a hologram and talks to us and he disappears. Thomas says, I stuck my fingers in there. And because he did, we can. And he says, the bodily resurrection is the thing Christians believe in. The hard thing, but the most important thing about Christianity is is, is that notion of mystery. It's hard to explain it in terms of everything else we know. Because at the moment we think that's a really good analogy, it's almost always wrong. Because the incarnation of God and Christ is something that had never happened before it hasn't happened since but it will happen again so even for example in, in chemistry remember we, we used to talk about the difference between a mixture and a compound you know, a mixture is when you take like salt and pepper and you stir them together or, or this is the mayonnaise and mustard and you call it Mustard mayonnaise or something. We call it special sauce. It's really mayonnaise and mustard just kind of stirred together. That's one way of trying to make sense of who Jesus is. It's kind of a little bit of God, a little bit of a little bit of us, and kind of stirred together. We have this this kind of hybrid creature. There's the other notion from chemistry, the compound, right, where you put two things together and it becomes something completely different. A third thing. That's another way people try to understand Jesus. You put a little bit of God and humans. And we have this unusual creature called Jesus, who's, who's not one or the other, but he's sort of kind of both. That's not Christianity either, although it makes sense to us. It's, he's all God, 
and he's all human. And although we can't quite get our heads around it, he's both at the same time. He's never, he's never half and half. And that's just the, that's the fundamental mystery that the early church fought hard to say, no, this is what we've always known. These attempts to, to rationalize it, to explain it in terms we understand, miss the gospel. Because the thing about the gospel is it doesn't make sense. Except it except it did happen. Other comments or questions? We just explained it so well that no one's even slightly confused. Oh, they're all asleep. <laughs> well, the thing about Gnosticism too, or Gnosticism, in one sense we think, oh, those are ancient heresies that, that got dealt with and put to rest, but they, they sneak back in. Because what happens, certainly in, in American Protestantism, is, is nobody wants to go to Bible class when it's going to be about orthodoxy again. I mean, it, it can seem really dry and arcane and esoteric, and does it, does it really have to be that complicated? And part of the answer is, is no. But the result is, is that when somebody asks you what you really believe about Jesus, some of us get caught up short and think, well, I just, he's the Son of God, what does that mean? Why, why is that a, a better story than what I get told by the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or by whoever. Being able to explain what you really believe isn't all that hard. What's your mantra? Theology is... The gospel is simple, but it is not simplistic. Yeah, the gospel is not simple, but it's not simplistic. The simple thing is Jesus was God, 100%. And he was man, 100%. To, to make it simplistic is to, is, to, is to try to explain it in some other way that fits in with what we ordinarily understand about what we think is real. For the ancient Gnostics, their version of it was, well, we're coming from a culture that's dualistic. That's what, that's what we've always lived in. You're telling me about this Jesus guy. Let me plug him into my worldview and make sense of him. Oh, okay. I'm more comfortable seeing him as just pretending to be human because he's really a god. Because that way I can fit him in with all those other god stories I've heard. I'm comfortable with it. I can fit it in with my hatred of the body and the material world, like Plato. I can, I can, it fits. Except that that's not the gospel. And I think we, we suffer from the same problem. We live in a very different world with very different ideas. We live in a... It's almost become cliche now, almost old-fashioned, a new age world where many of us are, are trying to fit in Jesus into the, the worldview we've inherited. And every time we do that, we, we run the risk of losing the gospel, which is at its heart a mystery. And so it's always important to remember, but as you start to try to, to make sense of it, you don't want to change what's the reality of it. And that's, the, I think, the constant challenge. Because it is a unique thing. But that's why it matters. The incarnation is, is a thing that changes everything in, in, in human history. And when we lose sight of that, because we can explain it as like something else, then we've sort of lost the gospel. Um, 
I was curious, man, in your opinion, from your perspective today, do you feel like culturally we have a challenge with Jesus is fully God or Jesus is fully human? Here there's a challenge with Jesus is fully human. You know, in, the, in today's cultural you know, experience that we're going through right now, which end of the pendulum swing do you think is the challenge? I'd say both, but... I think we tend to... Our culture tends to want to make Jesus just another good person, a good prophet, someone that is a good moral teacher, rather than someone who is actually divine. So. Or we like to believe that there's a little bit of God in all of us. And if we tap into that, we'll be better people. And that's that's a that's a heresy only that's the other side of that coin. Now we have to stop because it's about time. Let's end by reciting the the Apostles' Creed, which incorporates those fundamental beliefs that Christians have always believed. We may not have enough copies. If you don't, don't worry about it. Just see what you can do by memory. It's okay to, to mumble. I have my copy, so I'll read mine. Here's the creed. This is what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thanks very much. It's close. Thank you, Dr. Wine.